welcome to the Ashtanga Dispatch Podcast. I'm Peg Mulqueen. And I'm Megan Powell. So, Peg. Yes? In our conversations lately, we've been talking a lot about ethics in yoga. But then we keep getting hung up on certain words and the different interpretations. Like, I think we spent two hours last week talking about the difference between adaptation and appropriation. I mean, there's an obvious difference, but we were struggling to put that into words. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons we asked Dr. Sham Ranganathan of yogaphilosophy.com to join us in today's episode. After all, his doctoral dissertation is literally on translation, and he's even published a book translating the Yoga Sutras. But as you'll hear Sham explain in today's episode, There's a lot more to translating words than, well, words. Here's Dr. Ranganathan. The reason we get into trouble is we think that translation is about matching words. There's so many problems with this view, but the way pros do it, they actually specialize in specific genres or kinds of text. And then what that means then is they're not translating words, they're translating text. So think about it like reproducing a sculpture in a different medium. So, you know, you start off with pebbles, your initial sculptures and pebbles, and you're, and you're trying to recreate it with like elbow macaroni. You're not going to get a piece to piece, but macroscopically, you can get a reproduction according to some criteria. So while I think it's neat to think about these things, like what was what does this word, I think a lot of problems arise because people don't think about the discipline they're interested in. So if it's yoga, I would suggest it's philosophy, but then I'd want to know where's the word, where's the word occurring and what what what's going on in that discussion and um, so that solves problems, but unfortunately it won't, it won't, uh, solve this problem that you have because <laughs> it's kind of unsolvable. <laughs> That's my two cents. <laughs> this is why I didn't do well in philosophy. <laughs> well, philosophers, uh, are, they're experts at, um, figuring out problems you didn't know you had. So that's kind of what we do. You didn't know you had this problem. That's your problem. Here's the solution. That's what we do. (laughs) Actually, let's start off with something else that Megan and I have just gotten off an hour of a pretty lively discussion over in preparation for meeting with you. Megan, can you, can you go, can you take this one? Okay. I'll give you a bit of background as to why this was, this came up. So I'm in this course, a yoga course, and actually the teacher um, was, I don't know if anyone can be a past philosopher. I feel like maybe once a philosopher, always a philosopher sort of thing, but he's a philosopher. The past month or two has really been focused on ethics um, and ethics in yoga. Um, And I was telling my partner a little bit about it. And he said, it's really interesting. Um, is it possible to discuss these things without using personal belief? Like it's always like personal stories. And I was like, I don't think so. (laughs) 
But, but, so, so you don't you don't think it's possible to have this conversation without bringing yourself into no okay, okay. so okay. i said that and i was like i feel like it makes it more relatable but it's possible okay, okay. so anyway i then watched a talk that you gave a three-part series on ethics and yoga which completely just blew everything I just said. Um, <laughs> and, but one thing that you were talking about is interpretation um, versus and logic and how we use interpretation um, in the West. And that's very centric to the way we uh, view the world or interpret, interpret um, philosophy. But then there's this other way of doing it and it's called logic. Um, which was like, whoa, I feel like I've never heard this word before, which I think escapes so many people. What is logic? And I just yeah. found it fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad that was the reaction. I, it's, it's either that or it's off-putting. So I suppose this is the better of the two. <laughs> so, so help us I, understand. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, so this is the question. Like, yeah. what do you mean logic? Or yeah, what, what do you mean logic? Or? And how do we discuss ethics oh. logically? Sure. Is that the same question, Megan? Or do you Well, I was hoping maybe you could just speak to it a bit more um, because I found, I mean, you spoke to it quite a bit. Um, and I didn't have a particular question, but I found okay. it very challenging to use logic. Okay, good. <laughs> so then we'll go back to Pe the Peg's formulation. How do you use logic? So the thing that blows, like, so if you, if you have ever entered or done ethics in an undergraduate philosophy course, the, the, the first challenge that the professor has, and you probably won't know that this is what they're trying to do, is they're trying to get you away from thinking about everything in terms of what you came in with, right? Because we all have all sorts of issues and assumptions and uh, and these don't, these aren't necessarily well thought out. They're just kind of habitual. Um, and so what your prof philosophy professor is going to try to do is they're going to try and encourage you to think about alternate explanations of ethical choices. But these explanations aren't descriptive. They don't, they're not trying to describe what we do, they're trying to they're trying to help us come to the right choice. So, but in order to engage in that, you need an argument, you need a theory that's going to crank out conclusions about what you should be doing on various occasions. So that's just a very simple way where logic comes in at the very beginning of trying to understand moral philosophy. Like you're you're going to be taught a, a couple of a few different theories, and then you're going to be encouraged to think about how they inhaled different practical conclusions. The thing that I did, I've been talking a lot about in my work is how you don't need anything except for these skills to start understanding and learning. So uh, now why? Well, the alternative where you try to understand things in terms of your beliefs is not learning. It's just, it's not, it's just you. Like, so in the Yoga Sutra, it's asamita, it's egotism. Uh, we might call it narcissism, this kind of need to like uh, inflate the importance of your own outlook. But there's a flip side to it. There's a kind of fragility because like if it's all about you, then you're going to have a lot of difficulty understanding alternatives because you're going to feel constantly rejected. And, and so, um, so while we might think 
that explanation in terms of beliefs, which is what interpretation is, is like needed. It's actually a huge obstacle. Um, and the only reason we are able to get by with that is because of politics, right? If we if we occupy a certain realm where we share these kinds of beliefs with other people, or right, if we don't have those beliefs, we learn how to pretend we do, um, which is the experience of marginalized people. But it's um, you know it's interesting when you start to think about what's involved in learning. It can't ever be it can't ever be your beliefs. Because that, that's not that, that's not learning anything new. So that's what I would say to the like, how is this even possible? I'd suggest the alternative is impossible. So now let's start thinking about what what you know, how much more plausible it is to think about logic as that's how you're gonna do it. We don't always know that it's beliefs drive, right? I mean Yeah, you don't. Right. So this is a, so once this is so yoga for me kind of really the yoga sutra is actually where a lot of my insights and the importance of logic and how it's so different from belief come from, because what the yoga sutra teaches is we have a choice with respect to what we want to do. Do we want to explain in terms of how we see the world, that it's our beliefs, our fears, et cetera? Or do we want to take responsibility for organizing thinking so there's some there's some distance between what we're contemplating in ourselves and then we get to, you know, that space for you. That's Sutra 4. So Sutra, so sorry, Sutra 3. Sutra 2 of Book 1 is, is basically the definition of yoga as this responsible engagement in what you're contemplating. Yoga is Chittabhiti Naroda. But what the all the discussions, especially in book one of the yoga sutra, try and take us to is this idea that well, we're not always really all that prescient or clear about what's going on because there are mental influences, vrittis, that we're under. And these vrittis are outcomes of past choices with respect to how we relate to our mental content. And because we're when we don't practice yoga, we're always forever on the receiving end of those outcomes of past choices we live this kind of cloudy life um and we we're not we're not aware of what's going on and so the the point or at least what i started to learn from the yoga sutra is that it's not about your awareness it's about your practice so what what are you choosing not what are you aware of and when i started thinking about it that way it just it it revolutionized because it, you know if you're always just wondering well am i am is this clear to me am i experiencing this right correctly you're always actually just deferring back to your perspective and your attitude so you're you're not transcending that way of of understanding i was using this example with megan and i was saying that when my when my husband, Robert, when we were first talking about getting married, he is, I think I told you this, he has his PhD in philosophy from a Jesuit university from Georgetown, but he's an Mm -hmm. anti-theist. He is not an atheist. He is an Mm anti-theist. And I remember having this discussion with him sitting there and saying to him, and I literally said this, I don't think I can marry somebody who doesn't believe in God. And 
He Yvonne, were you wrong about that? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, well, I can't. I can't even believe. Like at the time, it felt yeah. like a very, like a very right. reasonable. I this is something, and I believe, right? So right. strongly, it was belief, and right. I don't think I was aware of how. It was illogical how wrong I was. And I remember him stopping me and he said, really, think (laughs) about what you just said. So it doesn't matter if somebody is a lives a very good, kind life and is a very good, just, honest person. Mm -hmm. That's your deal breaker. Like, could you? And then I remember him saying, could you tell me about God? Like, like now define, <laughs> define what it is you mean that when, and I was like, well, I don't know. I don't know. And I got real upset and I was like, I don't know what I mean. I just mean yeah. you have to believe in something. And I realized I didn't know what right. I wanted him to believe in. I had no idea. I just had some old belief that you have to believe in right. God. And it really stopped me in my tracks and made me question just where that came from and what did I mean? Right. And it was so illogical. Then when I realized when he like brought it back on me, but I don't think I would have realized that belief was so deep and embedded and driving probably a lot of my behavior until someone, someone important shined it back at me. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a really nice observation. How effective we can be with other people that we care about, right? When we're operating well as opposed to badly. Um, well, then you were lucky, I guess, in a way, right? <laughs> <laughs> that you that you got over that issue in the context of a loving relationship as opposed to like some kind of traumatic experience some people end up having. Um, yeah, I think. Well, you know, once again, the Yoga Sutra. It talks about when you when you inspect your samskaras, these these kind of these these embedded attitudes to things, you have an understanding of your past of past lives, which means it's something that happened in the past, right? This is actually referring back to something from before, but we carry it around as though it's like the deal breaker, and we have to filter everything this way, and it's not true, but. If we read the note, it says it is. Right? It says this is true. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. Can you expand on samskara a bit? Sure. So, um, well, there's there's the Yoga Sutra usage, and then there's a kind of interesting historical aspect. So, in the so samskara means a right. It means it has a positive and a negative. Meaning, and positively, it could mean a rite, some kind of ritual that you're committed to. And the Yoga Sutra actually suggests that we can create positive samskaras that cancel out our negative or bad samskaras. Uh, but it never says we're supposed to believe these or take these seriously. Why? Because they are identifications with experiences with thoughts and that identification undermines our freedom because we set, we then, we then treat it as though, just as you were relating as though that belief is a limit to your choices and possibilities. When in reality, you were the one that was empowering that belief and giving it all that energy in your life. So we live in this kind of backwards way when we're, when we're uh, governed by our samskaras, but they they have a they have a force, and that force has to do with our own past, right? In the energy we put into 
those commitments. And so, uh, you know, practicing yoga in part is about generating antidotes and scars. You're going to do something different. You're going to make a big fuss about doing something different as a way to unseat the importance that you'd given to these unhealthy uh, commitments. Uh, but historically, I think also it's it's critical of the earlier. So yoga comes a little later. Well, okay. So who knows how old yoga is? But it comes. We learn about yoga the later part of the Vedas, where it starts to creep up in the Upanishads. And the earlier part of the Vedas was all about uh, was was dedicated to worldview, where everything was determined externally by the forces of nature, the devas, and we had to play catch up with sacrifices, always trying to please external forces and and so early on they're like oh we've got to eat okay animal sacrifices and uh etc and those are also some scars right so those are those are rights that we end up thinking are important because of some type of traumatic event or experience uh and we feel as though it's our coping mechanism when in reality it's not it's just it's just what we ended up deciding at the time is the thing to be done so i think when the yoga sutra and the yoga tradition uses some scars somewhat critically it's also criticizing this idea that we're always somehow we have to play catch up to these forces uh that are trying to limit us There are quite a few words I realized as Megan and I were going through that in the course of um, even you don't even have to practice yoga for some of these terms that get thrown around. And I understand that our brain likes, you know, needs to make shortcuts and language yeah. is good and we can have a, an understanding, but then they become so frequently used and even that we assume we know the meaning but now we've adopted it in a way that might not mean at all what it's supposed to mean. And so the first word that comes to my mind is karma. Karma right. is used all the time. Wonderful. It just means, okay, so it just means action. So I'm going to introduce an idea here, which is the idea of literal meaning, the literal meaning of a word is its systematic or basic role in a language. So if you know the literal meaning of a word, you can understand derivative usages. Like you can you can go along with that. So once again, there's a historical aspect to this. So early on, karma would have been like the sacrifice is a thing you would have done with the hopes of some type of beneficial outcome. But it was done selfishly. Uh, and so Buddhists were the first to really make karma into something more than just the thing you're doing. They 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 use that model of like the stack of doing things for an end as a way to understand how our actions are motivated by certain desires, and then how our our commitment to those desires can generate habitual actions, karma that that not only we we don't give up, we kind of habitually do them, but they also produce outcomes that we end up having to contend with without appreciating 
the connection. Um, and this is actually very common with a lot of yoga philosophies. So it's like oftentimes we do things and we don't understand where this is going to go. But at some point we have an experience and at that time we're overwhelmed, <laughs> but we don't, we're not aware of how there's this threat to something we've done in the past. And this is in a way some similar to the samskara thing, right? We don't understand that at that point when we're experiencing the end result. So anyways, I think it's the Buddhists that really kind of give this blown up idea of karma. And then in the tradition, in the South Asian tradition, uh, a lot of people end up using that bigger notion, but for all sorts of different purposes. So the Jains, for instance, thought that karma was like a, is a physical substance that hides who you really are, the good you. And so we have to stop engaging in karma and then the yoga traditions, like, no, no, you have, it, there's no, it, not, you're always making a choice. So there's always an action at place. So this idea that somehow you can just not, you can give up on karma is not true. So there's no one kind of implementation. Everybody has their own way to think about the importance of that idea. But I would say it originally goes back to the idea of action, and then it gets this kind of more ethical reading uh, once the Buddhists come along. And when you say ethical, it just means you're just saying that there's a, an effect from your action. Well, something that is you that... can evaluate as good or bad. So, uh, right. So, you know, Buddhists deny the reality of a permanent self, but they were often called nihilists. And the famous Buddhist philosopher Nagarjuna said, I'm not a nihilist. I believe in the effects. I believe there's good and bad karma. That is, you can make choices with good outcomes, choices with bad outcomes. And um, and that's the ethical sense that the tradition, I think, on the whole ends up keeping. That our actions are just kind of in a vacuum. They can be good or bad. I'm going to go backwards. Sure. <laughs> you just made me think, and you said they can be good or bad. Yeah. And I was I was having this discussion with my son, who's an anthropology major, and he was talking about, and he's archaeology, anthropology, and he was talking about not looking at past cultures and not inflicting your own belief system on those as you're, as you're looking at their practices and the things that they did, that that's really important. You have to take out everything that you know when you're looking at those and you can't assume that you know why they did things or didn't do things. Um, how do you get around saying good, right or wrong, good or yeah. bad without a belief system? How do you oh, use it? Okay. Great question. Okay. So let's just start with the idea that you're not allowed to use your values. You can start off by thinking about what theirs are. So then you could describe whether the activity was good or bad as far as they see it. Right. So that's that's one way. But then if you do engage in moral philosophy, you can think about competing accounts of good, the good and the bad, or the right and the wrong. And then you have a way of understanding the topic, not in terms of your beliefs, but in terms of the disagreement. So this is why philosophy is really tough for a lot of people, because it means you can't, you're just not allowed on any. <laughs> the first thing you have to do is get rid of you and just try and understand what this disagreement is. Most people can't do that. 
Um, but it's interesting, once you can understand the disagreement, then you can take a side, but it's going to be interestingly informed. It's not going to be based on what you walked in the door with, like what, what you were already inclined to believe. You'll be able to tell a story based on the disagreement about the pros and cons of different options, right? And and that kind of uh, activity, uh, because it relies on argument, it's not going to be a, a belief thing. But of course, at first, it seems like inexplicable. <laughs> how? Where do I go from here? How do I? How do I? Uh, you know, do any anything with anybody if I can't uh, rely on my? But you know, interestingly enough cultural relativists, uh, which is cultural relativism is kind of this working assumption in anthropology that you're not allowed to use your frame to, they are, they have a story about what would be right and wrong, right? <laughs> At least in that respect in the background. So, <laughs> um, but, um, but, you know, to their credit, they'll say, well, there's something to learn from other people that you're not going to be able to do if you think your values have to, to come first. It's so interesting because you just don't know how woven those ex- our own personal experiences. We're unaware. Yes. And, and I mean, I can feel something so personally and not and feel like I'm being logical. And I can give another example. And I think this ties back to like today's world because I don't that, that's what Megan and I were talking about oh my gosh we have lost all logic like we we <laughs> so we are almost purely uh, coming at discussions about whether to wear a mask or not whether to be right. vaccinated or not right. um what it, all of these discussions are so um stained with personal experience belief systems um, it's almost impossible to have conversations anymore. And I can, as I can sit here and speak logically about that, but then I can also tell you, I've been in a conversation with my husband and it was when the kids at the border, Megan knows the story. So the, the children at the border, I was so upset like that they were separating these families, obviously. And that, no mother would separate themselves from their child, like unless conditions were so horrible. And my husband is being all logical and he's just saying, he's like being like devil's advocate with everything. (laughs) Well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Go to their country? Are you going to send people? And he's just like argument after argument about like how it's almost insolvable. And I just lose my shit. And I'm like, fine that them all and i just start crying and i'm just like really <laughs> this is yeah, ridiculous right that's a great but example yeah i'm separated from my daughter right mm-hmm. she's this whole the whole covid situation has us you know we haven't seen each other since march 20th 2020 mm-hmm. and other than these these experiences it was so personal to me and I'm a mom, right? right. So all of these things, it's, it's just touching on so many personal experiences. I lost the ability to even discuss what was happening without becoming incredibly emotional. And, um, and I wanted to hit him. I seriously did. I was like mm-hmm. going to get violent there. And, I, <laughs> and, 
um, but it took all of that actually for me to realize where it was coming from, that it, that it, yes, it was, but it was also very much wrapped up in me. Yeah. And I, I just, I'm wondering, mm-hmm. um, I don't know what I'm wondering. I'm wondering how, how do how we can you have uh, a conversation? Yeah, that basically. Happening? How, I mean, how do we even know what we don't know? How do we know what we're doing? Right. You know? So I think conversations are overrated. So I'm very happy to have conversations, but I don't think they're going to solve problems for the following reason. The conversations are defined by pragmatic interactions. It's about kind of getting what you need out of the interaction. And so most of our conversations are governed by these kind of pragmatic norms, right? People ask you, how are you doing? You'll say fine. It doesn't mean it's true. You just say fine, right? Like, it's like, um, so, but that's because like, you're like, I'm not here to have a big chit chat about my feelings or something. I'm just like, I'm fine. Okay. You know, so, um, but all, I mean, this is actually a classic problem in the philosophy of language where people are like, well, how do we know what we mean? Because when you take a look at most, let's assume, even assuming that we share share the same language, we're just making sounds and doing things. And then the question is like, what what is it that we're actually talking about? Because we could have different pictures in our mind about what what our words are referring to. And we would never know the difference as long as the, the grease of the social interaction kind of allowed us to move forward right um and so i think one of the hangovers of western tradition that people aren't aware of is this kind of immense uh importance placed on language and and talking as though that's what reasoning is in fact it's just one word the greeks had for logic and and words right logos and so you know we have this kind of optimism about conversations but i don't know what the evidence for the for the for the optimism is if you take a look at what goes on when people really solve problems like in research they're doing something so it's a kind it's a form of yoga they're engaging in a an organization of their mental content according to disciplinary considerations they don't know what the outcome is going to be but they have these rules that permit something like a discovery, right? And then people can be surprised and they can, you know, uh, what they thought can happen doesn't happen, but they're able to, they're able to process the information and solve a problem because they don't think it's about how we can talk to each other, right? It's not about you and me. It's about like the problem, right? So I think what's going on right now in, um, in a lot of the world, because the world has been like even in South Asia, it's the colonization by the Western tradition is global. You have this remarkable emphasis, pay, you know, placed on conversations. Um, so I remember after George Floyd, and you know, people were like now willing to say Black Lives Matter. <laughs> White people were on all words before they were like, "What do you mean?" Um, there's a lot of emphasis on listening, and I, I, at the time, I still think it's kind of funny because like I can listen to you it doesn't mean I'm going to take you seriously doesn't mean that I'm going to learn from you like sure I'll listen to you so you have to have this kind of give conversations this supernatural power they don't have um so I think that's why things like um discipline so what one of the other kind of huge influences of the yoga sutra and the way I think about things is think about 
research as a as a form of yoga. So you solve problems because you're just getting over yourself. It's not about your past and what you ate for breakfast. It's like it's really it just it's about the problem defined by a certain set of procedures that allow you to sort the data. So I think that's in part, like if we can get rid of the idea that somehow we have to come to consensus and we need everybody's opinion, <laughs> right? After all that matter, then we could turn to experts who do research and they can tell us things like wear a mask and get vaccinated. And, you know, then we can so tell us about your research and they will tell us about their research, right? And it will still not be a conversation because we'll we'll be learning from people who know what they're talking about. So yeah, I think it's just one of those. It's a problem that makes itself up. You started to go into yoga as a discipline. I yeah. think you yeah, were yeah. talking because I, I suddenly realized that, well, I just want to make this connection that both of those examples of my aha moments were out of conflict. They yeah. weren't, they were not conversations. I didn't think we were, I mean, they may be gone, but they were actually right. very heated emotion. It was rupture. Yeah. It was like, yeah. It, it, and I think I can't imagine having those kinds of arguments, fights, even like with anyone else besides my immediate family. Like I would yeah. never, it, um, Oh, as a philosophy professor, I can tell you, I, I regularly have students who try to have those fights with me. I figured yes. you <laughs> regularly. And like, I don't care. Like, I'm trying to like, I really, it's the last thing I'm interested in, right? And uh, but I think it's what you know, it's about being the context where you're going to have that samskara triggered. Right. So you have yes. something, you carry it around, you do, you're not aware of it. And then all of a sudden you walk into a scenario and boom, it's it's poked. Right. And so what is that circumstance? For some of us, it's just the people who we're close to because we won't allow anybody else to get that close to us. <laughs> yes. Right? You know, but for a lot of younger people, it's the world. It's the it's the authority figure. <laughs> it's the man, right? So it'll end up being me. I'll be the man, the authority figure, everybody that they <laughs> they've decided they just like and i will trigger it by just saying this is what we're talking about today ah. <laughs> so. but you if you don't have it triggered that's what i'm realizing i can be as mindful and uh you know what i mean like i these are things that i wasn't even it really took being triggered it took yeah well, you learn. That's unusual. Most people don't. So I, you know, I would say, oh, well, that's your yoga practice there, right? Um, most people just think that they were right. <laughs> so when they get really <laughs> upset, they they think that their emotional response is evidence that the other person was a jerk or something. Um, but you, that wasn't your response in those cases, right? Um, no, I always say to Megan that if I have a really strong emotional reaction, I have to take a step back. That I always figure that's my cue that there's something more. And and I, she knows this. Like I won't like it, I won't I won't act until I especially unless it's my husband. And then I'm like all over the place. <laughs> and then I let loose. But if it's, if it's anyone other than my husband, I right. do. I'm like, ooh, what is that? Like, and yeah. and and I guess you're right. I guess that is. Well, let's go into what is 
a yoga practice. Oh God, I'm going to tell you this. I am. I'm going to share this on a podcast. I got an email six months ago from Megan knows because I forwarded to her uh, from a local yoga studio that had uh, the headline was become a yoga teacher or just look like one. Learn to be a yoga teacher or just, I swear to God, it's like, I, 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 I know, I didn't know whether to like, literally like everybody else is lying. They're being honest. About it. I was, I, I, oh my God. Or just look like one. Can you guess the picture? I mean, can you guess? Yes, like, I can absolutely guess the picture. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Right? I call that fashion contortionism. I've decided that's my word for it. <laughs> I like that word. It, yeah. I was so outraged. Like yeah. this was, you know, like, and I wrote them and I, and I'm, and I'm like, it's so weird, but that's an extreme example. Yeah. Right. And so it's easy to recognize that it was yeah. easy to get that and like open it up and go, <gasps> you know, and of course mm-hmm. there's nobody listening. That's going to think that's yoga. Like, I mean, except mm-hmm. for maybe that studio that sent it, I think, but well, now people get into this, the business for all sorts of reasons. Right. And so for them, I, I'm just amazed. I, I, I'm just amazed that how many people it's just, the 200 hour teacher training and once they've done it there's nothing more to know about yoga <laughs> just like and because they could kind of walk the walk and talk the talk of being a yoga teacher right so um is it possible to practice yoga separate from philosophy separate from studying philosophy Oh, studying. Oh, okay. Um, so I, I've run into people who practice yoga, but they wouldn't describe themselves as studying philosophy. And uh, sometimes I, I'm, okay, so here, I got to back up. So yoga is, the, the kernel of yoga is the idea that the right thing to do is something that happens within a practice of devotion to the ideal of right choosing. So that the, the word in the yoga tradition for that is Ishra. And so in this context of devotion, you work on practicing the essential traits of Ishra sovereignty yourself, which is you're unconserved, you challenge yourself, tapas, and then swadhyaya, you own your own choices and self-govern. And so you're you're so it's primarily a, a, this devotional practice. So if you're doing that. You might not necessarily be very good at it, but there's still something like doing that. And this is the really important part of yoga because most ethical theories define the right thing to do in relationship to some picture of success, but yoga does not. It defines the right thing to do in relationship to the ideal of right doing. So you can be really bad at it and still be a kind of a a serious practitioner of yoga. But, and here's here's the thing, as you challenge yourself and you work on owning your own choices, you will come to uh, roadblocks that you won't be able to overcome unless you're willing to learn. I'm pretty sure about that. So at some point, you have to be open to learning more. So sure, some people can be practicing yoga without studying philosophy, but I think at some point, 
if you don't acknowledge that part of this challenge of the, the task of challenging yourself and owning your choices is understanding how that's different from other options, right? Why it's not just everybody's option, right? You're going to get confused about why yoga is. But the moment you realize it's just a option amongst alternatives, and you have that's just the beginning of studying yoga philosophy, right? Because that's where we do it. We think about, well, what are the options? Um, so, you know, I see, you know, but you don't have to be necessarily very rigorous in your study of philosophy. It just becomes something that's on the list of things you got to work on. Um, and those, those are kind of the remarkable yoga practitioners I run into. They're not running around claiming to be yoga philosophy teachers or something. That's <laughs> very easy for people to claim, but they're, they're aware that there's something to learn. And that's part of how, that's part of the room they need to move into uh, in their practice. Right. And I think, you know, so eventually, yes. You know, and I was thinking that most of the time when we start become interested is usually, like you said, when there's an obstacle, like you get injured or you get older or, you know, and the, and yeah. right. And, and then all of a sudden you become, you want, you, what, what else is like, is there something more to this? Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen so many people go through huge growth, including my, you know, myself, certainly when we've been faced with any kind of um, physical obstacle that it makes you, especially if it's been a very physical practice, it makes you mm. go, is this all I'm doing? You know, is there more right. to this? There has to be more like, because yeah. otherwise it's meaningless, everything you've done and, you know, all this energy you've put in towards a practice, because if, if it can sideline you, if you, you know, hurt your wrist yeah, or, right go through menopause. You know what I mean? Like these are, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Well, I think the ableism, right? This idea, like as long as you're able to do it, you, you feel like, Oh, I'm doing it. And then the reality that I, I think you right. The reality is that ableism is not part of yoga. And yet so many of us, not me, but a lot of people get into it when they're actually able to do the things that people call yoga, right. Which is uh, usually some kind of asana practice. And um, and yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I think those walls, uh, how are you going to solve that problem without taking a step back and thinking about, well, what are my options? Um, um, and it just so happens that I think that if you're serious about yoga, so there's some people that never move past that, right? They'll just, they'll just change their routine to something. They, can do. they won't think about challenging the routine they'll just think oh well i can't do that pose anymore <laughs> they, they won't think hold on why was i so caught up in this as yoga right why was this the only way to do it um and there are important differences with respect to where you go uh and i do think the philosophy is important for the resilience at least that's what i've seen from the people i teach right um it's not like they give up whatever practice they had it's just becomes in a way kind of enriched by a context of yoga practice that's beyond their asana practice or their pranayama practice. It just makes us re-examine, right? You're just yeah. like looking again. And I feel yeah. like that every time I open up the yoga sutras, like 
I, I know. I'm just, you do. Oh, good. Like, <laughs> oh, my story with the Yoga Sutra is really uh, like I worked on my translation of the Yoga Sutra while I was working on my dissertation on translation. So it was a bit of a challenge. It was like, okay, I'm going to apply what seems to me the best way to do this to this. And it took me about a year and a half or two years to get to the to the, the version that ends up being in my published Yoga Sutra translation. But every year I'd go back and I'd go, oh. So part of it is that the text is written so that you have to do the work of unpacking. So you have to do yoga to really open up what it's about. Um, but also your understanding becomes clearer as you're committed to the project, right? So it it it's in a way it's weird. I feel like it's speaking more and more about ordinary life than I thought it was when I first. Uh, at first, it was like just bizarre. <laughs> the more and more I read it, I'm like, oh, this is like ordinary life. It's talking about ordinary ordinary people, ordinary life, ordinary challenges. Um, which is kind of neat. It wasn't something I was particularly expecting when I first started. No, it seemed very ethereal at first. And I told you at first I read it and I was like, oh, this is psychology, you right. know, irrational beliefs and like, mm-hmm. you know, not knowing what we don't know and um, the suffering that comes from that. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is. But then it the language, some of the language mm-hmm. and translations, interpretations mm-hmm. were were difficult because the language wasn't and and you just used a word and you defined it very quickly and I'm gonna scoot you back Ishvara you yeah. said what the way you translate so in my translation I just did the conventional the Lord that's just kind of the convention but you have to unpack what that means and so actually in a I was having a conversation with one of my students who's also a philosopher uh, a Brazil, he's a he's Brazilian and an Ashtanga practitioner, and he'd never kind of done any yoga philosophy before. And he was staying with me, and it's like, Lord, it doesn't work in Portuguese. It sounds kind of bossy and mean. Do you have an alternative? <laughs> I said, Well, he's a philosopher. I said, How about sovereignty? I didn't realize there were all these right wing nuts running around talking about sovereignty. I was just thinking about the philosophical concept of sovereignty, and I'm like, Okay, how about sovereignty? And he was like, That's exactly it. And so I. I, I go between both of those. It's the idea. So if we want to know how potentially defines it, he's pretty clear. He gives a definition of Ishvara in book one of the Yoga Sutra. And there's kind of two essential traits of Ishvara. It doesn't have baggage. So it's not like it doesn't have a past, but it doesn't have baggage. Um, and its actions aren't, and it's not obstructed with respect to practical life. So he gives actually four different ways to talk about this. But what I noticed is that if you go to the start of book two, where uh, uh, yoga is defined as a practice, basically potentially spells out what the two essential traits of Ishra is in terms of the two practices you need to do while you're devoted to Ishra. So, and those two practices are challenging yourself and being unconservative, which is tapas. And then Swadhyaya is owning your own choices and self-determining. So those are really the two essential traits. So that's why I think like something that um, is not stuck in the past and can determine itself sounds like something sovereign. So I'm good with sovereignty as a uh, as a way to cash for Yeah, we 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 looked at we had heard that you had said that and 
we were looking it up and kind of, you know, batting that one. We actually had to look up sovereignty. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was just, I just didn't realize all these people were getting upset that I was using the word sovereignty. So I I mean, I, I am aware of this kind of extreme lock there's this kind of extreme libertarian view that says you can write your own constitution and call yourself sovereign <laughs> and, this kind of, and and so and and apparently this has been infecting um uh the yoga space insofar as people claim to be practicing yoga but they're being sovereign which means it just is whatever they choose it to be um so it's pretty weird um so the yoga, sorry, I'll, I'll stop talking about it, but I think one really yeah. important point about the yogic idea of sovereignty is about getting over your own ego. So what you find in the libertarian tradition where they talk or talk about sovereignty is it's just all about what they want. Um, but that way of thinking about your life makes you the point, right? And it's all self-referentially back to what you want. And that's exactly what you need to get over. Egotism is this conflation of yourself with how you see the world, right? Your perspective in you. And that's what we are, we need to get over because when we do that, as the, you know, the examples that you mentioned, Peg, it limits us. It limits us in our ability to relate to people, to relate to ourselves, right? We kind of live in this strange prison of our own making, right? Oh, I can never marry a person who acts like, really? You decided that, right? <laughs> no one else did. But yet it was this it was this weight on your shoulder you were carrying around, right? Um, that's just a great example. But we, you know, this is, um, you know, I think, once you realize that this is what yoga practice is, it's getting over your own ego. You're like, every day there's going to be a new thing. <laughs> Some other ball and chain you've been carrying around that you have to get rid of. <laughs> In 2020, I feel like a lot of people were faced with this moment. It was such a disruptor. Yeah. It made, you know, like all the things that were just patterned, you know, patterns. Yeah. And we were like on a trajectory And you, when you have that momentum, you just keep going and 2020 just went, you know, stop. Everybody had to stop. And so it's funny, like Mm -hmm. I'm talking to a lot of people right now who are questioning a lot of the choices that had gotten them to where they are, whether it was relationships that they were in Mm -hmm. career paths that they had taken, you know, and discovering, asking themselves questions, which was really scary. Like if it's a career path, is this really what I wanted or were the expectations there? Am I following expectations that were there or did I just take the path of least resistance or is this somebody I actually want to raise children with? Um, Mm. Is it like, it's, it made a lot of people, it slowed us down enough to take a look at where we were. And is this really consistent um, with are these choices yeah the ones that i believe are right and and i'm not saying that the answer was there like i i you know the, but but yeah. at least we were asking the questions which is uncomfortable but necessary yeah. absolutely i mean i was amazed in the first so i mean i guess it depends where you were in the world but i i think for north america certainly march april 2020 was when everything really started, it started crystallizing. This is going to be a new normal for a while. And everybody's like, oh, it'll be over in six months or something. Right? But like, there was this like, <laughs> there was this like, this is a weird new normal. And then there was like, 
two two reactions. Some people just had meltdowns. And other people were like, oh, okay, I have to figure out how I'm going to do this, right? And I think if you had a, if you had like a, a yoga practice, it was probably, you know, you were probably better, better prepared um, than not. I know, I mean, also it depends on your security and your, your actual material context, whether you were safe or not. So those things would, but I think we, one of the things that I, I talk about, and this is actually just part of the yoga tradition is this, there, there are different ways that you can make choices. And one way that's not a good way, but we often make choices is for the outcomes. So we imagine some type of outcome and then we think, well, that's what we want or that's good. And then we should do whatever we think is going to get us to that to that spot. And the yoga tradition is filled with criticisms of this is this is called consequentialism, the idea that the ends justify the I mean. Yoga tradition is filled with criticisms of this way of thinking. But I think that what the pandemic did was it threw it kind of threw a wrench into the plans of everybody who chose this way because they had some image of the way the future was going to be and they just had to keep chugging along to that destination, right? And then the pandemic started teaching people whatever you were imagining that's not that's not going to happen and yet there were lots of so if you take a look at you know anti anti-mitigation um protests sorry um anti-mitigation protests um there are people who are complaining that we're not being allowed to get back to normal right so there's this kind of anger at having to do something to respond to the pandemic. And I think these folks still imagine that that future that they were living for is a reality. It's not, <laughs> it's, it's gone or it won't come back for a long time. And, you know, you're going to have to do something differently in, in the meantime, but they, you know, um, so those people are having an especially difficult time. Um, but I think if you were more yogic, you're like, oh, this is something else I had to my plate of challenges that I have to work on, right? And um, so you don't, you're not, you're not having to reevaluate how you make choices. I think for these people, that's that's kind of the problem, right? And it might come out like, oh, maybe this is the wrong career, maybe this is the wrong uh, partner. But really, what's going on was maybe how I came to these decisions was like short-sighted, not really good for me. And I don't think that we're wired necessarily to always ask those kinds of questions. I mean, it's, it, it makes you feel, I mean, we don't like uncertainty anyway. So then it's like you start question asking questions of yourself in normal every day. It could make you crazy. I mean, like make you feel like, yeah. You know, like, I don't think we do that kind of, even though we do some levels of examination, I mean, hopefully if we have a practice where yeah. we're doing like um, manageable levels of self-examination, yeah. I think this, this made us do like a really like different yeah. than a physical, like no different than your yearly physical, but now we're going to do all the tests and we're going like, right. to really yeah. get in there. And yeah, I don't, I don't think we would do that naturally. Right. Well, right. So yoga, so yoga isn't anything natural. So I have, <laughs> wait, I, you I, said I, that. Yes, yeah, go. yeah. I have a post that a whole bunch of people got upset. At. I had people come and so it ended with like, go get vaccinated. And I had a whole bunch of people 
tell me, don't tell other people what to do. Like they were telling me what to do. Like each one of them was like, it is wrong to tell other people what to do. So don't tell her. Like you lack all self-awareness. <laughs> Not what many people do that. And I've actually, it's actually funny on Instagram since I've come on. I'm just amazed at the lack of self-aware people who claim to be doing yoga. I'll post something, it'll trigger a samskara, and then they will come and criticize me for doing exactly what they're doing. It's just, it's remarkable. But yoga is not natural. That's the whole point. The point is there are things that happen to us for external fact because of external factors. And then there are our interests as people. And these are not the same. So yoga then is this deep insight that, well, as people, we have to do something personal and we have to start living a life that's personal, which means we have to think about what is, what's the ideal of personhood like? And that's where Ishra comes in, right? So if the more, the more you can allow your practice to just be this kind of devotional practice properly understood. I think most people think bhakti is like harmoniums and singing. That's nice, but bhakti is really, devotion is really, you've got this procedural ideal and you are committed to that as how you make sense of your choices and work things out. So sure, go do your harmonium singing if you want, but really I think this is the core. And then of course, everything can be part of your uh, this devotional practice too, right? And uh, but then, but then all, you're all. So then, I think what's interesting is that you don't have to um, do a lot of self reflection. I think what ends up happening is because you're so committed to that practice, you're willing to accept that the way you thought things would turn out was isn't the way things. Are. Like you're okay with that, right? So you don't need to take the moment to go, oh, I had these expectations. But now I think it's just, it becomes increasingly part of the practice of like, you're like, yeah, whatever. And we, we just have to kind of go to the next thing. Um, and this is also a theme in the, in, in the yoga tradition, right? Stop worrying about the outcomes. Just think about, think about the practice. And um, so that's a weird way of living. It's not natural, but it's way easier. I can tell you it's way easier because you're not spending time on regrets and your past mistakes like you don't beat yourself up for not somehow choosing perfectly because that wasn't never the point the point is you're working on that right you're not you're not assuming you're perfect you're assuming you've got work to do so you know things become a lot easier if you can get to that place but it's not natural at all it's not um like you say how we're hardwired we're hardwired to avoid pains and go to sweet and pleasurable things right that's kind of how the genes got passed down to us um that's it brings up another term that was on my list and it gets thrown out and that's fire agya and a lot of time yeah i'm always amazed that people think that that's such an important word um okay, so what are you used to hearing it in relationship in relation to a lot of t- um it can be used oh god okay i got off facebook for a reason i'm not on facebook there was this home practitioners forum on there and people post their problems and everyone answers 
And half the answers will say ahimsa and the other half will say vairagya. So it's either, you know, be, you know, do no harm or you, you need to learn to let go. So it's like, the, you know, whether whether you got injured in practice, you don't know how to do this. The two answers that tend to be kind yeah. of knee jerk are these two Sanskrit words that basically everybody, I, I mean, I'm assuming that they're saying it as you need to learn to let go and you have to be good and kind, you know, and that's yeah. basically, and, and they're, they're oversimplified. I've also heard Vairagya oh. as non-attachment, of course. And, um, and that's, that's always been a little difficult to me because connection relationships are so important and I don't, yeah. and I, I mean, I, how can you, you know, that's a sickness actually to have, to not form healthy attachments in relationships is, yeah. is really detrimental to a ment- to mental health. And so there's, so I have like all these like conflicting kind of the way I've made peace with it is not holding on. And that, right. That's what I've made peace with, but I don't know. So you're right. The word vairagya, like not being dispassionate, not not being overly attached to something. Now, when this is used in the what's so, if we're talking about yoga, you have to you, the first thing to notice is that it is not anywhere near the central definitions of what yoga is. So it's it's it, it shows up in the tradition, but it's never central. And then when you take a look at when it's being used, I think it's being used in relationship to expectations. Now it's important not to be attached to expectations because expectations don't do anything. Like they don't produce anything. They don't make things happen. Right. So if you're interested in results, being attached to your expectations is self-defeating. So I think like yoga is tremendously practical, but it's always about snipping out those sabotage, uh, sabotaging elements of your life. So I would look, I would just kind of look at where this discussion is happening and what the context in which it's being discussed. It's not central uh, to yoga. Now, what another interesting thing about the yoga tradition, the wider yoga tradition, is that social relationships were always really important. So when you talk, when you look at the stories that were told in relationship to yoga, uh, even the Mahabharata and all the other, and a lot of the other stories of Vishnu's incarnations, there are always, there's always like a yoga element. It's always about friends and family. It's always about your connection to other people. It's always, because what it is to be a person is to be a token of a kind of thing. You're not the, you're not the only token of person. You are a person, but that's a kind of thing. And thinking about right choice in terms of the abstraction of, what it is to be a person, Ishra, means that you have a way to relate to other people that's really central to your own self-understanding. And But it's not about your ego. So you have a way of understanding your interests as, as, as the same as others, other people. And that's, in fact, an important part of getting over your ego. It's not about my perspective, right? It's about what we as people require to have our best life, right? Like, what does that look like? Well, we have to be responsible. We have to work on ourselves. 
we have to understand ourselves as an example of what it is to be a person. So our choices should be good for people. It shouldn't just be good for me. Um, so, yeah, so I don't know. I find that people, these discussions become kind of weirdly detached from the tradition when, um, when people want to just say, oh, well, the problem is you're too attached. Or something. <laughs> that's, not, that's the Buddhist answer, right? The Buddhist answer to your problems is that, oh, it's because you are you're attached to something. You have this desire. That's actually the source of the problem. But yoga is just a different... Theory. A lot of people confuse this. Sorry, there's like a fly in my face. A lot of people run these run these together, uh, and it doesn't help the conversation. They're different explanations uh, of what we should be doing. Well, it goes back to the uncomfortable feelings by having a be kind to have a simple answer for you need to learn like a we can kind of bypass that rupturing that happens right these confrontations these problems that we have maybe they're just not necessary to solve and that they're actually really helpful in I mean, I hate to say, like, it's good to be triggered. Like, it's like <laughs> being triggered every now and then or, or having something that invokes. It doesn't mean we have to act on it, but the okay. feelings themselves to feel. And I think it's the feelings that we become afraid of. So we have to have a quick answer so you can yeah, sure. get back to, do you know what I mean? Well, sometimes we don't want to, we, we're, we're so, you know, you don't want to see someone else cry, so you just want to change, yeah. change the, story, the topic of conversation, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think I think that's important. I think we need to acknowledge that people have problems, uh, but, anyways, from where I'm sitting, uh, te- as a as a teacher, I can tell you it's way better to just move. Like we have to. Well, we have to understand the source of that anxiety, the source of that emotional problem, because if we don't, we'll just keep triggering it. So when I see my students, I'll have, it's really, you know, so I teach large numbers of students. Well, I used to teach hundreds, but large classes. And you only need one student with an issue to bring it all down, right? So the vast majority of them, are the, they're just there, they're trying to learn, they're trying to do, and one student with an issue who, who, who treats their issue as themselves. So if you're not gonna respect the issue, you're not respecting them, right? And so then they wanna make them that, that and the, the, they're their own worst enemies because instead of allowing themselves to be over that, they 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 treat that triggering as a kind of evidence of the historic injustice. <laughs> so it's really it's um, but you know I think in your case right because you have a practice the triggering is like uh, you have healthy ways to deal with that. A lot of people don't. That would be my response to the notion that it's good to be triggered only for you type. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I remember something I was taught as a counselor back when, that when you, when someone cries, that you don't take tissues and hand them to them because there's this message that says you have to clean up. Like, you you know what I mean? Clean yourself up. You simply make sure that they're available 
but yeah. you allow people to go through the process. And I always remembered that because it, it's actually just really uncomfortable for us to see someone else. Yeah. Like, you know, someone has a problem. You're right. The natural inclination is to try to have an answer, fix it, clean it, clean it up. And, 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 um, and that's because lots of times we're uncomfortable. Speaking of uncomfortable, um, you, and I'll conclude with this doozy that you, you turned around on me. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're not, but that's nice that you said that. (laughs) I have been reading this book and um, now the, the, oh, what happened to you? And I had written down a sentence and it had just awakened something in me. I was like, oh, you know, all these mullings and and thoughts about it. And the sentence was, see if I can say it without it being in front of me. Colonization uh, fragments families, community cohesion. Something about culture. And culture. Yeah. And that is at the heart. That fragmentation is at the heart of trauma. And I was like, and I was like mind blown and sent it to you. And you, came back with an, uh, an idea and I'll let you take that over. Yeah. So it's true that, uh, colonizers do sometimes disrupt families. So as a Canadian, uh, I can talk about residential schools, right? They, they, they took kids away from their parents and put them in these, like these, these torture houses, um, And uh, so, and of course, you know, slavery, same kind of thing. Um, But is that always what colonization does? And I, you know, we can think of all sorts of examples where colonization doesn't do that. But what seems pretty evident to me is that what motivates the colonizer to do these things is that they have a picture of what families should look like, what culture should look like, what cohesion should look like. And then their efforts to impose it on others is actually the source of the trauma. Because what that ends up doing is it deprives other people the freedom they need to be individuals, right? Instead, they have to be forced into the mold of someone who has some power over their life. Um, So, but... I do think that the focus on culture, especially, is symptomatic of colonizing traditions. It's a really important part of colonizing traditions because that's where they get their issue from. If everything is about culture, what about those people out there who aren't part of my culture? How do I deal with them? So somehow I have to force them to simulate. Otherwise, either it disproves the importance of my culture or I run out of ways to deal with the reality of diversity. So I think that colonization is really more, uh, is more directed at our individuality. And so yoga, I said in response, you know, you had said that, well, you know, I find yoga as a kind of very, maybe one of the reasons why yoga is, is healing is that it helps us deal with this, this trauma. I said, well, yes, but it's because it's helping us be individuals. Kaivalya. It's helping us get back to being okay with making our own choices and doing our own thing and, and leaving other people the space to do the same, right? Um, so yeah, that was my response. <laughs> I thought I mean I, I thought that was really lovely. I had to take that, you know, that first phrase when it hit me was like peeling away something, and I was like, oh, 
that was looking at the outside behavior. I hadn't thought about it switched around as also the motive. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, and that, yes, it's healing, but not, I was still going back with motive, like it was instituting those things. And what you were yeah. saying was, it was actually allowing us to be, right, without the expectations, without being yeah. Molded. And that's the condition of healthy relationships, like family, <laughs> etc. Right? Uh, those healthy relationships require each each individual to be healthy as people. It's amazing. Um, I have to tell you, yeah, this has been, I mean, we could, I could probably keep you on here for a lot longer and, but I we can talk well, a bit more if you want to. I didn't know how long you wanted to go for. So. Oh, I'm just curious. Have you had a lot of people? Um, I bet your, have you, has your course enrollment increased this past year? So, yes. Uh, so, well, it's, it's hard for me to say because I only really started in 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was, I, it was, I was an unknown quantity. Um, and so the first year was just about kind of, kind of making my, I really didn't know what I was doing as someone who was <laughs> trying to run this business, but it, it did coincide the, the pandemic, and then the the interest in online learning certainly helped um, me, but I'm still pretty new and pretty, uh, uh, I mean, there are platforms that have been around for years and I'm sure they're doing extremely well and hiring people. It's me, it's, I do have other people teaching. Uh, so what's really important for me in my courses is that whoever's teaching has to be an expert. So like I offer Sanskrit, but it's, it's by someone finishing her PhD in Sanskrit. I'm not like, I know something, I'm not going to teach it. And, uh, and so it's really important for me. So I do have other people teaching, but I feel like I'm still kind of small <laughs> in some ways, but certainly I, I, I'm busier now than I was pre pandemic. Yeah, that's for sure. Have you ever heard of synchronicity? Young Yes. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Synchronicity is that you're operating so present that there's almost like multiple I don't know, like you're almost being guided and there's no coincidence. Like it's not a coincidence that you began in 2019. I, oh, I, yeah, I do believe this is me freaky. Megan knows like I, I have this like <laughs> God faith and I no longer say God, but my sovereignty. Um, <laughs> a devotion to sovereignty. Yeah, yeah. Well, things happen for like you, if you are present with everything, you end up in the right place. Cause I do feel like the pandemic has opened up. People want more. I I find that yoga mm-hmm. students who've been practicing, maybe they lost their studios, their communities, and it did make the community as a whole, I think, of many people within it question, wait, like, what more is there in my practice? Was it just going to a studio mm-hmm. and being taught? Like, you know what I mean? And so people were mm-hmm. digging deeper and digging into the philosophy is, is enormously obviously help. I mean, for resiliency and um, moving through this, I don't know what I would do without my yeah. practice, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, me too. Yeah. I, my own my own way to understand what you described is that if you're actually practicing your uh, devotion to 
Ishra, the procedural ideal of choosing, then you make the right choice because that's just what you're, that's where your energy is. It's not on, oh, I thought it was going to be this way, right? Your energy is actually on making the right choice. So the idea then in yoga is that because you're spending your energy on making the right choices, at some point, you just get good at it. Because, right, as you practice things, you become more proficient. So when you look back, what I find is the ways in which my life gets edited differently, right? So because now I have my practice as something orienting me to my future, my past mistakes are no longer kind of, they're not, they're they're different. They're like the moments, they stop being a story of my failure, then they start being part of my story of how I was overcoming a challenge and a problem that, that others couldn't save me from. And no one else was like, you know, that, Oh, look, I did all that. You know, it's, um, and so once again, your, your, your energy is not sapped in the way that it would have been before when you have this past of regrets. Um, yeah. So, you know, sometimes it does feel like, Oh, look, this is a fortuitous, you know, coincidence. And, uh, but I do think like, you're just, you're just working on doing the right thing at that time. So, it's I think you. that kind of that answer because I was wondering what is like what is the right choice, right? Like what We're, is right and wrong? Well, I guess it has to be something that happens within your context of devotion to the right choice. So then it's about so it has to be something you can live with as a practitioner, but it's also a way for you to be unconstrained from the past while you own your own choices and determine yourself. So there's a practical channel, like, right. You could think about it in terms of like, say physical practice, there's a limit to what you can do. Like you can try and push yourself beyond what you can keep a connection to, and then you'll hurt yourself. Right. So, so whatever you're doing, you have to be able to both challenge yourself and also own that choice and then keep doing it. It can't be something you can't do anything. That's like, so um, the moment that you start to do these things that sever the yoga the connection the integration of yourself is because you're you're doing it in service of some external uh expectation not your internal having to work work with yourself so that's so the nice thing about that is that there's no one story about what doing the right thing looks like for every i mean like it depends where you are and what your context is and what your challenge is and so um yoga isn't really uh an ethical theory of rules, there there are kind of upayas if you're having challenges, potentially prescribes eight upayas, which are the eight limbs, but those are because you're having trouble with practice, right? So if you're actually managing practice, you should be in a way doing all those things, right? And if you're not, if you're having challenges, you're like, okay, let's go back to basics. There's some kind of harm in my environment. I must disrupt that, right? So you go back to the Yamas and then you participate in the facts that allow you not to deprive other people of what they need, proper social boundaries, and you haven't hoarded, and then you can kind of start building up from there. Um, but, you know, um, it's not about following a rule book, or it's really about you living your life uh, as a person. So um, it always has this kind of quirky individual flavor to it. This was fantastic.
This was thank you. This was so ripped. good. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. I had a lot of fun talking to you. This is amazing. How if somebody is interested in studying with you, learning from you, how can they? Yogaphilosophy.com. So uh, I I got the domain, so you can go there. Uh, I also do a lot of free philosophy on Instagram, yogaphilosophy underscore com, where you can see me posting things and triggering people some scars, (laughs) (laughs) where they will tell me not to do the very thing that they're doing. (laughs) You caught my eye on Instagram. It was Instagram. And yeah, you do post some provocative ideas on there and they get me thinking. And I obviously like that. I, you know, I like to think sometimes too much, but, (laughs) 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 but the questioning I think is such a wonderful process. And I appreciate the way you offer, um, various teachings through Instagram in a way that's accessible for anyone to be reading and kind of take a step and go, huh, you know, learn something, an aha moment, or maybe just like a, if it does trigger, like maybe it just like, you know, makes you question something that you have. I enjoy that. I think there's way too much of the opposite. That's either confrontational in a, in a very, non-ahimsa way yeah, right. <laughs> um, or just more of the same and that just bores me mm. so I really appreciate what you put out there through Instagram <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah and I appreciate you spending all this time with us this evening well, thank you nice meeting you Peg great talking to you again <laughs> take care to both of you <laughs> thank you Thanks for listening to today's episode with Dr. Sean Ranganathan. I think that was one of my favorites. Mine too. And remember, if you're interested in learning more from Sean, be sure to visit yogaphilosophy.com and follow him on Instagram. Oh, and before you run off, Peg and I also wanted to share our newest online offering that begins in October, Living the Path using the tools of yoga for navigating change. Visit ashtangadispatch.com for this offering and so much more. The Ashtanga Dispatch podcast is hosted by me, Peg Mulqueen. And me, Megan Powell. Music is by Mark Pelly. And again, thanks for listening.